Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 this morning. We're actually going to finish the seventh chapter today. And if you're uh, a guest, um, we, I want to welcome you. You're actually coming to the last week of about 10 or 11 weeks, actually closer to 12 or 13 if you count Easter, where we've been in Matthew, particularly in, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon. Um, Matthew, in the beginning of his gospel, gives us um, a taste of the kind of sermon that Jesus would preach when he would travel. So Jesus would travel around and he would teach. And Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is sort of embodies what we think is the heart of the teaching of Christ. And we're finishing it up uh, today. <clears throat> Last week I used a word that I, I liked. I kept reflecting on it. It felt fitting. And the word was subtle how so much of the teachings of Jesus are subtle. They are getting at uh, Jesus stares through everything in his teaching to past the front that we as people put up, and he stares back into what's really at work. And that's the definition of subtle. Subtle is sort of um, to be able to uh, see the delicate truth that may not be that obvious. Something subtle, it's, it's not so obvious. It's hard to see, but it's there. There's times in our lives where we see, we're watching something like a show, and it's, uh, for me, this happened the other day, I was watching, uh, my family were watching this police show called Blue Bloods. We're in season one. And I found myself going, wondering, is this like it really is? Like, how realistic is this? Because I cannot judge. I cannot perceive the subtleties of police life. So I went to my friend and I said, hey, is this legit? And he was like, yeah, it's pretty good. I mean, there's a little bit of drama going on, but it's pretty good. Because my friend who's a police officer understands the subtleties. He can understand a counterfeit from the real thing in that world. You know, uh, legal, like courtroom movies are the same way. I see lawyers and courtrooms and trials and I have to say to my lawyer friends, is that how it really is? Because I don't understand. I can't tell between a counterfeit and the real thing. He can. He's very perceptive in the subtleties of it. On occasion, people will come to me about the movie Top Gun. That is the worst movie ever made, <laughs> ever, because I'm attuned to the subtleties of it, right? What Jesus is going to be, has been doing, and, and will finish, conclude doing today, is he's preaching, he's teaching and pushing on you to say, your life in Christ is a very careful thing. And if you're not careful, it could be counterfeit. It's subtle, the way we end up living our lives. And so I thought that word, it, was, it started last Sunday, but it's just, it, it's a good word. And by the way, the word subtle is even subtle. Do you, for someone who can't spell, I lack the ability to spell almost entirely. You know how hard the word subtle is to spell? 
I got the red line under it this week, and I was so off when I right-clicked it, it couldn't even help me. It was like, I don't, the computer was like, I don't even know where you're going, man. Like, it starts with an S, and I can't help you after that. Like, I got no suggestions found. Do, you know, there's a, did you know, like, if I had to spell subtle, it would be S-U-D-D-L-E, subtle. <laughs> right? That's how it sounds. Do you know there's a B in it? So even subtle is subtle, okay? That's what the Lord is saying. You have, to, you have to understand your life in Christ. You have to understand it, or you may get missed. That's, that's what's going on here. Last week, we looked at three invitations of Jesus Christ. All of them are subtle. The first one was, hey, there are two roads. Beware, right? The way, the, the way to destruction is a wide, easy highway path that many people are on. That's the path to destruction. In other words, it's really easy for you to head down the wrong path towards destruction, whereas the path to life is narrow and hard, and few make it. In other words, if you are not very intentional, what path do you think you'll be on? So. Immediately following that was, beware for prophets or teachers who come in, uh, false teachers who are like wolves in sheep's clothing. You will know them by their fruit. In other words, Jesus was saying, listen, don't just listen to what a, like, the fine-sounding arguments that come from someone's mouth or the fact that they've mastered the religious way of your tradition or they, they dress the right way or they have the right titles or they are influential and they know how to work the room. Don't fall for that. Look at their fruit. Follow after their life and observe, are they on the straight and narrow? Is their life producing fruit that's godly? Subtle. We ended last week with this one. He said, there will be many on that day who will say to me, Lord, Lord. He says, Don't be fooled. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom. But when I come to judge mankind, some of you who will have said that, he, he says, you will say to me, Lord, did we not do this in your name? And did we not do that in your name? And big things. Did we heal in your name and cast out demons in your name? He sort of picked red letter items that obviously only, only a follower of Jesus could have done. He says, there's going to be people who will say, did not in my life that I not do significant acts of obedience in your name, to which Jesus say on that day, I'll say, depart from me, you lawless one. I don't even know you. Now that one catches me because that is a room just like this. Like a room where many of us here claim to labor in the name of Christ. And Jesus is saying, I don't care what acts you do and how you might append my name to the end of it. I care whether you know me or not. That's subtle. It's easy, if you are not careful, to think, to think you belong to Christ and yet be on the wrong path. And that brings us this morning to the final teaching. I would like to read uh, verse 24. So Matthew 7, verse 24. I want to read three or four verses. 
This is what Jesus says. It's a, he ends with a parable. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, before we get into the, the subtleties of the parable, I think there's a lot of truth that we can see right up front. There's a lot of really simple, clear truth that sits right at the top of this. Something like this. We could say Jesus is teaching us that to hear, hearing his teachings demands action. You can't just hear the words of Jesus like he's a wise teacher and then walk away unchanged. And you can't simply be interested in Jesus, but rather to hear him, to be wise, okay, to be the wise man in this picture, is to hear, process, and then be changed by it. Faith Result, real faith results in work. And real change, real change is a product of real faith. For anyone here, right? Anyone here, it doesn't matter if you've been believed in Christ for 30 years, 40 years, to continually hear and be taught from the Word of God causes to continual change. Nobody here says, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. It's... It is continually pushy, where we hear a truth and we, ah, but Lord, help me, help me there. Now, when I say that, what I'm not saying is that we need to be perfect or that the inclination of Christ is perfect. His, this idea of anyone who hears this and does this, he's not saying, his assumption is not that you're going to do it all perfectly all the time. That's, there's, there's no mercy in that. There's, there's no hope in that, right? If perfection's the standard. Rather, rather he's, he's looking and calling people to say, those of you who, in light of the safety that you have because of Christ, now, now you can actually begin to really deal with the teachings of Jesus. It's because we're safe in Christ that we can stare truth straight in the face. It's when, it's when we are challenged or threatened by the Lord that we really don't want to hear what we're supposed to do. But the truth is, I mean, when we think of what Christ has done for us, is he has, he's brought us in so that in safety, as a child of God now, I can deal with the reality that I'm not that good. I can deal with the full reality of who I am and who I'm not. And I can be challenged by it. That's what he's saying here. Now, there are some subtleties, though, that sit beneath this parable, and this is what I'd, I'd like to spend our time on this morning. I'd like to look at four of these, I guess I would call them finer points. Here's the first one. In this parable, the difference that makes all the difference is unseen. The foundation is the point of the parable. It's the only difference, really. 
The difference that makes all the difference between the wise man and the foolish man is entirely unseen, right? Foundations are below grade. They're invisible. They're out of sight. They are a reality upon which everything that is seen sits. That's the image here. Is there something that's not seen that's carrying all the weight in this idea? Which means you could have two, two, kind, two people who, by all of our accounts and all of their appearances, look the same, talk the same, similar jobs, similar sorts of needs or mannerisms, similar interests, similar ways of processing things, apparently to us. And we could think they're the same, but in reality they could be two very different individuals because of what we cannot see. It's subtle. Jesus is saying the difference between the fool and the wise man is not obvious. It's subtle. It really has to do with what is going on unseen that makes the difference. And this has shown up many times. So uh, beware of false prophets. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look one way, but... they're, they're the opposite. In other words, they, they appear godly, but there's no foundation there. There's no, nothing beneath them. Or when he says, there are many people who will say, Lord, Lord. Like, there's going to be people who sound, who mimic followers of Jesus really well. They've grown accustomed to the religious mimicry of Christianity. And they appear to all of our estimations as though they're really following, but beneath them there's nothing. Jesus says, don't be like the hypocrites who pray so as to be heard and, and act out on the street corners and, and as, so as to be seen. It says, exercise their religious faith in a way that's visible. Don't be like them. He says, I'm far more concerned with how you exercise your faith, in, faith invisibly. I want to read um, an excerpt from Luke. This is Luke chapter 6. Luke uh, accounts for many of the items in the, in the Sermon on the Mount in his own way. So this is actually how the, this parable shows up in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now, the one of the reasons I like this version, or I think it's an interesting compliment, is because of the nature of the foundation. Did you hear the wise man? didn't just build his house on the rock. He dug down until he got to the rock. What it has, it has in it this, this notion of the wise man puts in the work to build his, to find and build his house, his livelihood. Okay, We're not really talking about houses. It's a parable. His livelihood and his life. This wise man is working to build his life, but he's not content until it's settled and steady on something that will hold weight. Whereas the fool whether it's in haste or thoughtlessness or overconfidence, the fool feels like, I am good enough, like what I can do is fine. I'll just start building. 
doesn't really have any sense that what am I building my life on? The difference that makes all the difference in your life is, is unseen. Here's the second uh, nuance. Is that the wise man's survival has nothing to do with his craftsmanship. It's not his house that saves him. His salvation is not something he built. It's actually what his livelihood rests upon, right? He didn't build the rock. The rock was there. He built on the rock. It's the rock bears all the weight in the weather. The rock bears all the trauma. We should note in this parable, the wise man's house is not a better house. Nor is the storm a lesser storm. It's purely, the pure survival of it is the rock. I mean, I would, this is where I'm cautious to say that the wise people of Jesus, how would I say it? I mean, I'd like to think we live better lives. I will say at the same time, our hope is not in the fact that we live better lives. Our hope is in Jesus. That's it. I hope we build the finest home, right, in the sense of life. I hope we build the finest lives we can possibly imagine. Still, that's not where our hope is. Here's a test that I was thinking, how, how, how can I process this in my own life? Here's what I, I might offer you. How often, if you trace events and decisions in your own life, trace them down, how, when you're thinking of how you make decisions, how often do these decisions and events in your life find their way back to Jesus? Meaning, if you're asking a question about getting a job or asking a question about retirement or asking a question about education or what you're going to go to school or a relationship or all sorts of things, when you're asking those questions and you're sort of going through, I'm sure at some point, right, we all do the pluses and minuses category, all that sort of stuff. But when it's filtering down, does it find its way to what would Jesus have me do? What does my Lord think about this? Well, how would this affect my witness? Has God called me to remain here or is he allowing me to leave here? Is this, am I supposed to try to get out of this hardship or am I supposed to remain in this hardship and exhibit my faith? Are your questions ending like that or are they sort of dead ending above the, at the surface, right? Those are dig down questions. Those are questions that go, I'm not done asking this question until I hit rock. Or, does it sort of dead in with you? Like, well, what do I want to do? I don't like my job. I'm going to go get a new job. Or uh, I'm not happy with the way this is. I want to change it. Is it just, are you the final arbiter on the issues in your life? Because the wise man's survival has nothing to do with his craftsmanship. It has everything to do with the fact that he drills down all the way until he's sitting on the rock. By the way, when you're asking this question, usually we think of our sinfulness as a bad thing. Truth be told, you think about your sinfulness, there might be some promise in here. Some of us 
I would say all of us at some point in our lives, when you begin to deal with sinfulness, it's, you're only dealing with it because you're building your life on the rock. There are many areas in my life that I was ignorant to until the Lord put them in front of me. So there are things in your life that it's not until you begin to found your life on the rock that the Lord even begins to bother you about them. So just because you're like, I'm working on this sin and I keep failing or I trip up here or I, man, I feel like this sort of still seems to have the better of me most days or most weeks, I would say that does not mean don't fret necessarily. Don't be so discouraged necessarily. This might mean that you're finally fighting. Finally, you're beginning, this is finally now contested territory. You're finally digging a little bit deeper. Any of these occasions in your life when you follow back and you're pursuing and seeking, like how is God at the root? When you find these places, I just want you to feel encouraged. These are signs that you're anchoring your life in the Lord. When, when you really are not resting until you feel like you have a sense of what he thinks on the subject. All right, here's a third idea. I just want to flip the idea around a little bit. So just like the wise man's survival had nothing to do with his house, but on the foundation, we should note that the fool places all of his confidence in his house. The fool, all of his hope is in the life he's building. And yet the reality is that his home, in the parable, the home offers no hope for survival. Collapse and utter ruin are inevitable for this man. No skill, no talent, no amount of effort, no, you know, someone could be super adept at the, the things of mankind. It does not matter. It cannot save him. He might even build a better home than the wise man. And I, I know, like, I'm leaving the parable for a second, but I'm not leaving, leaving the idea. I can imagine, in fact, I know of many people, I at least know of some, but I, certainly in, I can imagine many people who can build a better life than some who are in Christ. I'm saying they're born well-equipped, they're well-educated, they've been given good opportunity, they know how to work a room, or they know how to influence people, they read the right books, they go to the right conferences, they live in the right neighborhood, they have the right school zone. You list it, they have every human advantage, and the house they build might be, might be far better. We might look at it and say, they are way closer to the good life than someone over here who might have not had a lot of those opportunities or advantages or just might have not taken them at the right time and all, might be, in comparison, highly disadvantaged in those things. But if this person's house is built on the rock, this one will stand and that one has no hope. No hope. Because it's the foundation. What I'm saying is, here's the subtlety is, especially to a room like this, is, you can mistake your ability at living for whether you actually have eternal life. And it can catch you. You can be really good at this life and bricking up the doorway to the next life through your overconfidence. And there really is skills at this life do not survive the storm.
In this parable, the fool has invested his life into something that will not save him. I think, by the way, this is why many people feel threatened by Jesus. It's because the teachings of Jesus point this out in us. Jesus regularly points out in you places where you have placed false hope. That won't stand. That won't last. That will rust. That doesn't count for it. Only me. And to people who have placed a lot of trust, who have a very noteworthy home, very noteworthy life, those teachings are threatening. I'm, I'm going to say this uh, gently. I guess I'll say it autobiographically so that it sounds even more gentle. I've made most of the mistakes to be made, so that's okay. I have been thinking about this, and this is one reason I think that... Um, Youth, youth can be a trap for the fool. Because when I was young, I was drawn to things that could be seen over things of substance. I think that's common with young people. Is this, the visible life being the life that I call real. I now am gaining an appreciation for the life that can be seen is built, built on what's real. I want to know what's real. But in my youth, I was drawn to what's seen. In my youth, I tended to be confident, which means I had a high view of my ability to build my way out of a problem. The sort of immortality of youth. Uh, Doesn't matter what comes, I can fix it. This optimism about my ability. And as a in my youth, I was optimistic, what I would say, at least in the parable, is I was optimistic about the weather. <laughs> I, I didn't think, I didn't really think a big storm would come my way. You know, I sometimes think the fool builds with the 10-day forecast in mind, and the wise person builds with the 100-year floodplain in mind. So there's a sense here, if we just look at the nature of the fool, there seems to be this idea that this refusal to build his life on the rock speaks of either overconfidence in himself or denial in what's coming. It's one of those two things. You're either overconfident in the life you can build, which is not. Right? The truth is, what's below the ground is the difference that makes the difference. Or are you really denying What's coming your way? Here's the final thought. We should note the trial and the hardship come to both, the wise man and the fool. In fact, they come to both in almost perfect symmetry, in perfect symmetry, right? This parable is a parable of perfect symmetry except for one difference, the foundation. Otherwise, everything is exactly the same. We should note them. That means the wise man did not in his wisdom build in a better valley that was more temperate, like a better region where the weather was better. He didn't do that. In other words, the life of the wise man is not easier than the life of the fool. Same amount of hardship. The wise man doesn't get less hardship, doesn't get less bad things. The same, right? Job loss, symmetry. Health issues, there's a symmetry. We should imagine a symmetry 
of the idea that the wise man is still going to deal with the same sort of health issues as the fool or difficult lost opportunities or difficulties or trials or all those sorts of things. They're going to visit themselves in really regular ways like rain on the wise just like it will on the fool or really torrential, dramatic ways like a flood just as they did on the wise like they did on the fool. In other words, the wise man in his wisdom does not get dealt a better hand by the Lord. He gets dealt the same hand. It's just he, in his wisdom, fares better in the way he plays his hand or in the way he views his hand. The wise man, his life being built on the rock, his his life is well-ordered. To be wise in Scripture is to understand how the world works, to understand things in the right way. He's anchored and he's footed in eternal and unwavering things. So in the same way that the possessions of the fool will rust and rot, so will the possessions of the wise man will rust and rot. But the difference is, is that the wise man's possessions, he's not storing up on earth, he's storing in heaven. He's sort of, he's, he's, he doesn't put a lot of hope in the things of this world. He's, his thoughts are the, the world to come. And so he doesn't have as much here as far as things he's placed his trust in. Or if you think of uh, one's wealth and one's hope and one's confidence, if it's, if it's not in your craftsmanship, but on the rock, you're sturdy. In a very real way, when your future hope is secure, it's, you cannot be moved. When a person's future hope, when they're, what will happen to them is safe, that is when they stand strongest. I think of the table here. In the Lord's Supper, the Lord reminds us of what He has done for us, right? What He's done for us, has already done for us. So there's this past memory that we place our faith in that gives us this future hope that will not be shaken. That's why we take this. We remind ourselves of what the Lord has done so that it makes we anchor ourselves. We put our weight on this table. This is what God has done for me. And because of that, I can stand firm. Because the things of this world matter less. It's like we're weatherproofed. A person who is safe in Christ can suffer tremendous loss in this world and remain standing. I think of this with Paul, Peter, Stephen, all through the Scriptures, all through the Scriptures, we see people who are losing day by day. They seem to be losing everything, and yet their lives are full of joy, and they stand in the Lord. I want to read a couple of Beatitudes. As I read them to you, This is how the sermon started by Jesus. What I want you to hear is how future-oriented their hope is, okay? That those who in the present, right, because of what Christ has done, we have this future hope which allows us now, gives us the faith right now to stand. Just listen to how he says it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those now who know their need of God, Jesus is saying, one day you'll have the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If your life is anchored in Christ now, you can stand knowing what you will receive. You don't need to put all your hope in the way you build your life because this life is passing and his kingdom is coming. And if you're not careful, you can miss it. It's subtle. I'm going to close this in prayer. And as I do, I'm just going to lead us to the table here. So if you'll bow your heads. Lord, may this room receive this invitation from you. May we think about our lives, about what is our life really resting upon. And may we vanquish from our minds the shallow conclusions that we often make about Jesus. He's a wise teacher. He's a good man. He's a fine example. He's a model of love. These things which carry no, they don't carry real weight, not weight like Jesus is Lord of my life. We remind ourselves, Lord, that you sent your son who for the forgiveness of our sins willingly died and shed his blood so that we might be forgiven. He paid the penalty of all of our sins. And I pray, Lord, that in this room we might rest on that this morning. I pray that that, when we ask the questions of our life, when we're working through issues in our life, Lord, and as they drill down, that's, what, that's where we would stop, is when we get to what Christ has done for us and what Christ has called us to. And I pray that, Lord, for everyone here, as we remember, Lord, your work, the body you've given, the blood that you've shed. May this be our thought, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.